Chapter Twelve of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Twelve. A notice from the president's office commanding Carl's instant presence was in his post office box. He slouched into the waiting room of the offices of the president and dean. He had an incarnate desire to say exactly what he thought to the round woolly president would. Plain Albert Smith was leaving the waiting room. He seized Carl's hand with his plowman's paw and said, "Goodbye, boy," he growled. There was nothing gallant about his appearance, his blue flannel shirt, dusty with white fuzz, his wrinkled brick-red neck, the oyster-like ear at which he kept fumbling with a seamy fingernail of his left hand. But Carl's salute was a salute to the new king. "'How do you mean, good-bye, Al?' I've just resigned from Plato, Carl. How'd you happen to do that? Did they summon you here? No, just resigned, said Plain Smith. One time when I was school teaching, I had to set to with a school committee of farmers about teaching the kids a little botany. They said the three R's were enough. I won out, but I swore I'd stand up for any teacher that tried to be honest the way he seen it. I don't agree with Fraser about those socialists and all fellow that's worked at the plow like I have knows a man wants to get ahead for his woman and himself, first of all, and let the walking delegates do the work, too. But I think he's honest, all right, and, well, I stood up, and that means losing my scholarship. They won't try to fire me. Guess I'll mosey on to the U of M. Can't probably live there as cheap as here, but cousin of mine owns a big shoe store, and maybe I can get a job with him. Boy, you were plucky to get up. Glad we've got each other, finally. I feel as though you'd freed me from something. God bless you. To the dean's assistant in the waiting room, Carl grandly stated, Erickson, 1908. I'm to see the president. It's been arranged you to see the dean instead. Sit down. Dean's engaged just now. Carl was kept waiting for a half hour. He did not like the transference to the dean, who was no anxious old lamb like S. Alcott Wood, but a young collegiate climber, with a clipped mustache, a gold eyeglass chain over one ear, a curt voice, many facts, a spurious appreciation of music, and no mellowness. He was a graduate of the University of Chicago and aggressively proud of it. He had earned his way through college, which all tradition and all fiction pronounced the perfect manner of acquiring a noble independence and financial ability. Indeed, the blessing of early poverty is in general praised as the perfect training for acquiring enough wealth to save one's old children from the curse of early poverty. It would be safer to malign George Washington and the Boy Scouts, professional baseball, and the YMCA than to suggest that working one way through college is not necessarily manlier than playing and dreaming and reading one's way through. Defiantly, without generalizing, the historian reports this fact about the dean. He had lost the graciousness of his rustic clergyman father and developed an itchingly bustling manner, a tremendous readiness for taking charge of everything in sight, by acquiring during his undergraduate days a mastery of all the petty ways of earning money, such as charging meek and stupid wealthy students too much for private tutoring and bullying his classmates into patronizing the laundry whose agent he was. The dean stuck his little finger far out into the air 
when drinking from a cup, and liked to be taken for a well-dressed man of the world. The half-hour of waiting gave Carl a feeling of the power of the authorities, and he kept seeing plain Smith in his cousin's shoe-store trying to fit women's shoes with his large red hands. When he was ordered to step into the dean's office now, he stumbled in, pulling at his soft felt hat. With his back to Carl, the dean was writing at a roll-top desk. The burnished top of his narrow, slightly bald head seemed efficient and formidable. Not glancing up, the dean snapped, "'Sit down, young man.' Carl sat down. He crumpled his hat again. He stared at a framed photograph and moved his feet about, trying to keep them quiet. More waiting. The dean inspected Carl over his shoulder. He still held his pen. The fingers of his left hand tapped his desk tablet. He turned in his swivel chair deliberately, as though he was now ready to settle everything permanently. "'Well, young man, are you prepared to apologize to the president and faculty?' "'Apologize? For what?' president said those that wanted to protest. "'Now we won't have any blustering, if you please, Erickson. I haven't the slightest doubt that you are prepared to give an exhibition of martyrdom. That is why I ask the privilege of taking care of you, instead of permitting you to distress President Wood any further. We will drop all this posing, if you don't mind. I assure you that it doesn't make—I— the slightest impression on me, Erickson. Let's get down to business. You know perfectly well that you have stirred up all the trouble you—I could in regard to Mr. Fraser, and I think I really think that we should either have to have your written apology and your promise to think a little more before you talk hereafter, or else we shall have to request your resignation from the college. I'm sorry that we apparently can't run this college to suit you, Erickson, but as we can't, why, I'm afraid we shall have to ask you not to increase our inefficiency by making all the trouble you can. Wait now. Let's not have any melodrama. You may as well pick up that hat again. It doesn't seem to impress me much when you throw it down, though doubtless it was very dramatically done. Oh, yes, indeed, very dramatic. See here, I know you, and I know your type, my young friend, and I haven't. Look here. Why do I get picked out as the goat, the one to apologize, because I stood up first? When Prexy said to, Oh, not at all. Say, it's because you quite shamelessly made motions at others while you stood there and did your best to disaffect men who hadn't the least desire to join in your trouble-making. Now, I'm a very busy, young man, and I think this is all the time I shall waste on you. I shall expect to find you written. Say, honest, Dean, Carl suddenly laughed. May I just say one thing before I get thrown out? Certainly. We have every desire to deal justly with you, and to always give, always to give you every opportunity. Well, I just wanted to say, in case I resign and don't see you again, that I admire your nerve. I wish I could get over feeling like a sophomore talking to a dean, and then I could tell you I hadn't supposed there was anybody who could talk to me the way you have and get away with it. I'd always thought I'd punch their head off. And here you had me completely buffaloed. It's wonderful. Honestly, it never struck me till just this second 
that there isn't any law that compels me to sit here and take all this. You had me completely hypnotized. You know, I might retort truthfully and say I am not accustomed to have students address me in quite this manner. I'm glad, however, to find that you are sensible enough not to make an amusing show of yourself by imagining that you are making a noble flight for freedom. By decision of the President and myself, I am compelled to give you this one chance only. Unless I find your apology in my letter-box here by five this evening, I shall have to suspend you or bring you up before faculty for dismissal. But, my boy, I feel that perhaps, for all your mistaken notions, you do have a certain amount of courage, and I want to say a word. The dean did say a word. In fact, he said a large number of admirable words, regarding the effect of Carl's possible dismissal on his friends, his family, and with an almost tearful climax on his mother. Now go and think it over. Pray over it, unselfishly, my boy, and let me hear from you before five. Only, the reason why Carl did visualize his mother, the reason why the Erickson kitchen became so clear to him that he saw his tired-faced mother reaching up to wind the alarm clock that stood beside the ball of odd string on the shelf above the water-pail, the reason why he felt caved in at the stomach was that he knew he was going to leave Plato and he did not know where in the world he was going. A time of quick action, of bursting the bonds even of friendship. He walked quietly into Jeanie Linderbeck's neat room with the rose-hued comforter on a narrow brass bed, passé, partoed, copley prints, and a small oak table with immaculate green desk blotter, and said good-bye. His hidden apprehension, the cold, empty feeling of his stomach, the nervous intensity of his emotions told him that he was already on the long trail that leads to fortune, then bowery lodging-houses, and death and happiness. Even while he was warning himself that he must not go, that he owed it to his folks to apologize and stay, he was stumbling into the bank and drawing out his ninety-two dollars. It seemed a great sum. While waiting for it, he did sums on the back of a deposit slip. Ninety-two dollars out of the bank, two dollars and twenty-seven cents in pocket, about ten cents in room, total ninety-four thirty-seven. O. Taylor, dollar and forty-five cents, Turk, twenty-five cents, to Minneapolis, three dollars and five cents, to Chicago, probably fifteen to eighteen dollars, to New York, twenty to thirty, to Europe, steerage, forty dollars, total about ninety-two seventy-five would take me to Europe. Golly, I could go to Europe, to Europe. Now, if I wanted to, and have maybe two plunks over or grub on the railroad, I'd have to allow something for tips, I guess. Maybe it wouldn't be as much as forty dollars for steerage. Ought to allow... Oh, thunder! I've got enough to make a mighty good start seeing the world, anyway. On the street, a boy was selling extras of the Plato Weekly Times with the heading, President Crushes Student Rebellion, Plato Demonstration for Anarchists Handled Without Gloves. Carl read that he and two other students, who are alleged to have been concerned in several student pranks, had attempted to break up a chapel meeting, but had been put to shame by the famous administrator S. Alcott Wood. He had never seen his name in the press, except some three times in the local items 
of the Jalolman dynamite. It looked so intimidatingly public that he tried to forget it was there. He chuckled when he thought of Plain Smith and Jeanie Linderbeck as concerned in student pranks. But he was growing angry. He considered staying and fighting his opponents to the end. Then he told himself that he must leave Plato, after having announced to Jeanie that he was going. He had made all his decisions except the actual deciding. He omitted his noonday dinner and tramped into the country, trying to plan how and where he would go. As evening came, cloudy and chill in a low wooded tract, miles north of Plato, with dead boughs kneeling in the uneasy air, threatening a rain that never quite came, the loneliness of the land seemed to befog all the possibilities of the future. He wanted the lamp-lit security of his room, with the Turk and the gang in red sweaters, singing ragtime with the Fraser Fair, a bad dream that was forgotten. The world outside Plato would all be like those lowering woods and dreary swamps. He turned. He could find solace only in making his mind a blank, sullen, dull. He watched the sunset, watched the belying cumulus clouds mimic the Grand Canyon. He had to see the Grand Canyon. He would. He had turned the corner. His clammy heart was warming. He was slowly coming to understand that he was actually free to take youth's freedom. He saw the vision of America through which he might follow the trail like the pioneers whose spiritual descendant he was. How noble was the panorama that thrilled this one generation American can be understood only by those who have smelled our brown soil not by the condescending gods from abroad who come hither to gather money by lecturing on our evil habit of money-gathering and return to europe to report that america is a land of irish politicians jewish theatrical managers and mining millionaires who invariably say i swan to calculate all of them huddled in unfriendly hotels or in hovels set on hopeless prairie not such the Americans that lifted Carl's chin in wonder. Cities of tall towers, tawny deserts of the southwest, and the flawless sky of cornflower blue over sagebrush and painted butte, silent forests of the northwest, golden china dragons of San Francisco, old orchards of New England, the oily Gulf of Mexico, where tramp steamers puffed down to Rio, a snow-piled cabin among somber pines of northern mountains. Elsewhere, 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 beyond the skyline, under larger stars where men ride jesting and women smile. Names alluring to the American, he repeated, Shenandoah, Santa Inez, the Little Bighorn, Baton Rouge, the Great Smokies, Rappahannock, Arizona, Cheyenne, Mongahalia, Andersgrogan Canyon, and Bayouk, Sycamore, and Mesquite. Broadway and El Camino Real. He hurled along into Plato. He went into Mrs. Hankel's for supper. He smiled at the questions dumped upon him. He evaded answering. He took May Thurston aside and told her he was leaving Plato. He wanted to call on Professor Fraser. He did not dare. From a pleasant gentleman drinking tea, Fraser had changed to a prophet whom he revered. Carl darted into his room. The Turk was waiting for him. 
Carl cut short the Turk's apologies for not having supported Fraser with the dreadful curt pleasantness of an alienated friend, and, as he began packing his clothes in two old suitcases, insisted, "'It's all right. Was your biz whether you stood up in chapel or not?' He hunted diligently through the back of the closet for a non-existent shoe in order to get away from the shamefaced melancholy which covered the Turk when Carl presented him with all his books, his skis, and his pet hockey stick. He prolonged the search because it had occurred to him that, as it was now eleven o'clock, the train north left at midnight, the Minneapolis train at two a.m. It might be well to decide where he was going when he went away. Well, Minneapolis and Chicago, beyond that, he'd wait and see. Anywhere. He could go anywhere in the world now. He popped out of the closet cheerfully. While the Turk mooned, Carl wrote short, honest notes to Gertie, to his banker-employer, to Benny Rusk, whom he addressed as Friend Ben. He found himself writing a long and spirited letter to Bone Stillman, who came out of the backwater of ineffectuality as a man who had dared. Frankly, he wrote to his mother. His mammy, he wistfully called her. To his father, he could not write. With quick thumps of his fist, he stamped the letters, then glanced at the Turk. He was gay, mature, businesslike, ready for anything. I'll pull out in half an hour now, he chuckled. Gosh, sighed the Turk. I feel as if I were responsible for everything. Oh, say, here's the letter I forgot to give you. Came this afternoon. The letter was from Gertie. Dear Carl, I hear that you are standing for that Fraser just as much as ever, and really, Carl, I think you might consider other people's feelings a little and not be so selfish. Without finishing it, Carl tore up the letter in a fury. Then, poor kid, guess she means well, he thought, and made an imaginary bow to her in farewell. There was a certain amount of the milk of human kindness in the frozen husk he had for a time become but he must be blamed for icily rejecting the Turk's blundering attempts to make peace. He courteously, courteously, between those two, declined the Turk's offer to help him carry his suitcase to the station. That was like a slap. Goodbye. Hang on tight, he said, as he stooped to the heavy suitcases and marched out the door without looking back. By some providence he was safe from the crime of chilly self-righteousness. On the darkness of the stairs he felt all at once how responsive a chum the Turk had been. He dropped the suitcases, not caring how they fell, rushed back into the room and found the Turk still staring at the door. He cried, "'Oh, man, I was—say, you yahoo, are you going to make me carry both my valises to the depot?' They rushed off together, laughing, promising to write to each other. The Minneapolis train pulled out, with Carl trying to appear commonplace. None of the sleepy passengers saw that the golden fleece was draped about him, or that under his arm he bore the harp of Ulysses. He was merely a young man, taking a train at a way station. End of Part 1